Well, good morning and welcome to Catalyst Online. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. And I want to welcome all the people from Central Kentucky, from around the United States and around the world that are joining us this morning. Uh, we're in a series called Making the Adventure Personal, and we're in part five uh, called The Integrity Adventure, trusting God through standing for what you believe is right. And today the main thing is a faith that costs nothing is worth Nothing. Um, one of the quotes I memorized when I was a young man was by Winston Churchill, and it says, You have enemies? Good. That means you stood for something sometime in your life. Uh, life is not a popularity contest, and all of us will be called on to stand for what we believe is right. At some point in life, you will be called, we'll be challenged to make unpopular stands, to, uh, to take up issues that will get you in trouble, to be the lone voice in the crowd. All of us, that is a part of life. And uh, uh, at that point, we have to ask ourselves, do we trust God enough to st uh, through standing for what we believe is right? We have to really think about this because some of the stands we were called to take could cost us dearly, really cost us. They could cost us professionally, relationally, socially, financially, even possibly our lives. So we have to ask ourselves, do we trust God enough to stand for what we believe is right. Uh, I want to invite you to turn to J Daniel chapter twenty, ch ch chapter three. Uh, it's, it's a very famous story, story of three Hebrew teenagers um, and uh, named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we will find three things about their story that will help us in standing for what we believe is right. The first thing that we learn about about this is. They don't bow. They don't bow. Uh, the, the, the passage starts off with the words King Nebuchadnezzar. See, it is more than just a ship in the matrix. Uh, uh, it, the Babylonians had conquered Judah, and they, had, uh, they would go in, and they would completely destroy the country, and they would take the people that were survived into captivity, into Babylon. they make them uh, work as slaves, forced laborers, things like that. Um, and King Nebuchadnezzar was a brutal, egotistical, egomaniac uh, who believed himself to be God. That's what he believed. And he set up an image of himself 90 feet high, and he commanded the entire nation to worship him when music was played. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were teenagers um, who were serving in Babylon as captives. If we go to verse uh, 4, through six, it said, Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Now, this was a, a routine thing that kings did to enforce conformity, to enforce loyalty. Uh, Kim Jong-un in North Korea did something similar. When he came to power, he forced every man in North Korea to get the same haircut that he had. So if there was a man walking around North Korea without Kim Jong-un's haircut, he was killed because that was a sign of disloyalty. Um, well, Nebuchadnezzar's given everyone a chance to volunteer to worship the image of gold. And everyone falls down and worships this image except three teenagers named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, some tattletales go to the king. I guess uh, Nebuchadnezzar had set up a you know a hotline that you could uh, tell on your neighbors, uh, and 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 they say here in verse twelve. Uh, but there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, Your Majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. This was no small deal at all. 
Let's say uh, uh, that, that uh, Nebuchadnezzar had, had uh, set up this 90-foot uh, image of himself, and right next to it, he had set up a blazing furnace, and the furnace had one purpose, that was to burn people alive. So the image was here, and the furnace was right next to it. Uh, let, let's say that the president sets up a 90-foot statue of himself and set, commands all of America, uh, when, I, when you hear the sound of music, I want you to fall down and worship me. I would imagine Imagine not a single person listening to this this morning would do that. Wouldn't. We thought we think that'd be crazy. Unless, of course, he also commands that those who don't will be burned alive in a huge furnace. The people can see the image. They can see the furnace. They can hear the crackling of the wood. They can smell the smoke. They can feel the heat coming out of the furnace. And it seems like a pretty easy choice. Fall down and worship or get burned alive. Not a hard choice for most people. And all of a sudden, the conductor stands up and he taps uh, his baton, he raises up, and the, and the horn players and all the musicians raise their instruments, and on the downbeat, the music starts, and you could hear the sound of tens of thousands of knees and foreheads hitting the ground in worship, except for three people. There are three people still standing, three Hebrew teenagers. And I want to tell you as a pastor, I pray for the teenagers in our church and in this nation. I really do. The middle schoolers and the high schoolers, I pray they will never, ever bow down to the things of this world. Uh, they, they have the courage to stand in full devotion to the living God. Um, uh, the three things we find out about this image the first thing was made of gold. It represented materialism. The God of materialism that, that all of our teenagers, all of our adults are tempted to bow down and worship, to give our lives to. Uh, the, the second thing was that was an image of a man uh, that, that elevated humanity over God. The Bible tells us to worship God alone. And the, here was this image of a man that, that we were commanded to worship, uh, elevating humanity over God. Um, that is it the definition of humanism, and this is the official religion of America. Um, uh, all over America, people are bowing down to the, uh, to the image of humanism. The third thing is that it falsified worship. Um, you can threaten people all you want, but you can't force worship. Worship comes from the heart. It is a voluntary thing. Uh, but God understood that there's a connection between worship and music. Uh, God created music, and he gave us music uh, in order for us to worship him. Many people report that the reason they're at this church is because of the music. It draws them closer to God. Well, that must be it because they're certainly not here for the preaching. Okay, uh, how it moves them to worship God. Uh, music is not innocent. It is not harmless. Okay, that's one thing we learn here. Um, who made the following statement? Let me write the music of a nation, and I will determine its morals. Was it Hillsong United? Was it Madonna? Was it the Catalyst Worship Team? Or was it Adolf Hitler? Well, exactly right. It was Adolf Hitler that said that. Music will either draw you close to God or repel you far from God. Uh, I guarantee if you're going through a tough time in life, this is what I want you to do. I want you to unplug from all media and all TV and all music and everything and listen to only worship music. I want you to do that for a week and I want to see if you are drawn closer to God because of that. Um, give it a shot. I'm glad that these three saw that God and God alone was the only way and there were no other options, none. And they wouldn't bow to a false God like so many do, but they would not bow. They would also not 
bend. They wouldn't bend. Uh, verse 13, because he heard this, furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I've set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? He is greater than God, he thinks. He thinks he can do something that God cannot counter, that God can't save them from. How arrogant of this mortal human. Look at what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. In other words, King, we've already made up our minds. It's a done deal. You can give us a second chance. You can give us a third chance. You can give us a hundred chances. You can give us a thousand chances, and we are not going to change. We're not going to bow down and worship a false image. We aren't going to argue. We're not going to try to reason with you. We're not going to try to present our case to you because it won't do any good. It's a done deal. We aren't going to do what you say. In verse 17, I love this. It says, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. The God we serve is what? Able. I want you to remember that, able. And here's the kicker. This is the key to the entire thing. If you're using your YouVersion Bible, I want you to highlight it. If you're in a, in a print Bible, I want you to underline it, dog ear the page, mark it. This is it right here, verse 18. And they say this, but even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up, even if he does not. That's the kicker right there. There's only one way, King. Verse 17 said, God is able to rescue us. He's able. But even if he doesn't, even if we're burned alive, even if God decides that this is our time and we, and we are uh, burned to a crisp and, and we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. See, some of us have a faulty kind of faith. It's a faulty faith. Uh, it, it basically says, uh, God, I will serve you if, if you get me out of this dilemma I'm in. Um, I, I, it's like a foxhole faith. Um, I need, Lord, if you get me out of this, I'll serve you, or I'll love you, or I'll become a follower of yours. Well, that's not real faith. Real faith is, is what these three boys said, that even if we don't get what we want, we're going to serve you, God. I'm saying faithful. I won't bow and I won't bend. See, this is real faith. Real faith says, I'm staying faithful, not because the results towards me, but because of what is right. I stay faithful to God because of my love for God, not because of the results that might happen. See, many of us have this crazy idea that staying true to God makes, us, uh, um, uh, makes everything work out. It doesn't. It doesn't all the time. Uh, God doesn't swoop in and save us miraculously every time. He doesn't. There are hundreds of thousands of Christians that give their lives for, for Christ every single year. That happens, okay? We stay faithful not because of the results, but because of our love for God and because it's the right thing. There are people who are struggling here today that are listening to this. Uh, there may be people with cancer, well, I believe that God can deliver you from that. He can heal you from that. But if he doesn't, will you still serve him? 
Um, I believe there are people that are struggling with addiction. And I believe God will deliver you from that. I believe he will. But if he doesn't, will you still serve him? Um, uh, there, there are people that, uh, that are struggling financially and you just can't find a way out. I believe God will show you a way out. But if he doesn't, will you still serve him? Um, college students, there, there may be a professor, like, like a, a few that I had, that make it very, very clear that if you show any devotion to God, you're going to fail. Well, I believe that God will work in, a way, in ways that you will pass, but even if he doesn't, will you still serve him and not compromise? I believe that God will do that. There are people here who are going through fiery, unimaginable trials. I believe God can d- uh, deliver you from that, but if he doesn't, will you still serve him? So, see, so many people don't get what they want, and they just quit. They quit on God. They quit on their faith. They quit on the church. And I just want to ask, where is your faith? Where is it? Are you only there if you get what you want when you want it? That's not faith. That's not even close to faith. So the question is, I'm asking this morning is, where's your faith? Where's your trust in God? Do you believe that God is able? Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say God is able to deliver us He's the only way, he's the only God, he is able. But even if he doesn't, we won't bow and we won't bend, we won't worship something that is false and we won't bow down to it. They don't bow, they don't bend, and then look what happens, they don't burn. Verse 19, Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furs heated seven times harder than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot, the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Now, how many of y'all are good at math? You only need one hand to do the math here, okay? There were how many thrown in? Three. Look at verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three Men that we tied up and threw into the fire. They replied, certainly, your majesty. And he said, look, I see four walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like the son of a god. So who's the fourth man? Well, it's obvious. It's the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Uh, he, I can easily imagine Jesus up in heaven, and some angels come and tell him, hey, there are three teenagers down there that are taking on, standing up to the most powerful man on earth. And they are not bowing. They're the only ones in the whole country not bowing down. And Jesus said, oh, I've, I've got to see this. So he, step, he stands up off his throne, and he steps over the heavenly ramparts, and he takes a, uh, some, some type of stairway all the way down, and he, and he lands in the fiery furnace, and he sits there and waits, and he says to the flames, cool it. And when the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown in there, he's sitting there waiting for them. And... Uh, and he looks at the three and he says, no worries. I'm in control. And I always have been. And I always will be. Then verse 26, Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. 
So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, not, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Verse 28, then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command, and they were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. So whatever it is that you are going through right now, whatever stand you are being challenged to make, your son or daughter maybe has left the faith and has devastated you. Uh, You've lost a spouse, either through death or through divorce. Uh, Your marriage is teetering on the edge of collapse. Um, your, your business is tanking, you're, you're, you're about to lose a job. There's a lot of that's going on right now. Whatever your trial is, you only have one job, and that is to keep trusting God. To keep trusting God, that is your only job, because there are four lessons we learn in the fire. The first lesson we learn is this, persecution. It reveals your commitment. It reveals whether you're genuine or not. That's why so many times it seems like Christians in other countries like China and, and, and Pakistan and, and places that it's really tough to be a Christian, they endure persecution all the time. It seems like they're so much more dedicated than most of the people we see. Why? Because persecution reveals the commitment that you have. As wonderful as the people watching this uh, this morning are, and I love every one of you, the... The simple truth is, is that if persecution came our way, not everybody would stay faithful, and we know it. And you know who you are. See, persecution reveals your commitment. It reveals whether you're genuine or not. The second thing we learn is perseverance, uh, following in Jesus' footsteps. It actually says in the Bible that Jesus suffered and gave us an example to follow. Okay, this, this one verse is why I don't believe in the health and wealth prosperity gospel. I don't. When you suffer for righteousness, when you take a stand, you, when you stand up for what you believe, you are following Jesus' example. The third lesson we learn is presence, all right? Uh, Jesus is never going to leave you. Whenever you face a trial, whenever you are called to stand alone against the crowd, whenever you have to take an unpopular stand that will get you enemies and wreck you financially and wreck you socially, Jesus is standing right beside you. He is literally right there. That's what this, he was right in the fire with them, with them. And he never promised that we wouldn't go through trials. He just promised to walk with us through them. And, you, and people are saying, well, I'm tired of the trials. I'm tired of the fire. Why in the world does God make me go through that? Well, because of reason number four. The answer is the fourth one, purification. God uses the fire to purify you. See, some of you are going through tough times and you're called to make tough stands on things that are making you unpopular. And you're asking God, when are you going to turn the heat down? When am I going to stop getting all this garbage for what I believe? Why aren't you delivering me? Why aren't you answering my prayers? And God, is, God says, I am working in you in ways you could never fathom or understand. I'm working in your life. I'm working in your family. I'm working in your place of business. I'm working in you to purify it and to do things in you that you could never, ever fathom. God is refining you in that situation. And I don't know if these three Hebrew teenagers living in a foreign land, were prepared that day to do what they did. They probably were, though, because they had been preparing for it. Uh, they, they knew it was coming. They were living in a strange land, a foreign land. Uh, they, 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 they weren't foolish. They read the signs of the culture. Uh, they, they, they saw where it was going. 
And they did something that I want to ask every one of you to do. They made pre-decisions. A pre-decision is kind of like fixing the, you have a hole in the roof, and you fix it when the sun is shining instead of waiting until it rains. Okay, a pre-decision is something that you make when things are okay, when things are going well, when, you're, when there is no challenge. It's things that you decide about what you're going to do when the trouble comes, a pre-decision. I cannot emphasize the, uh, the importance of pre-decision. That's what these teenagers did. See, uh, see several years ago, when the Obergefell case was before the Supreme Court and homosexual marriage was made legal, um, lots of pastors on, on discussions, everything, um, were, were saying, what, what are we going to do? When are, when, are, are we going to uh, do, perform homosexual marriages? Are we going to say no? Um, what is going to happen? Uh, are, are we going to just stop signing marriage licenses altogether? What are we going to do? That was, uh, that was a big thing back then. And in that moment, I made... A predecision. I, I made the decision that I was going to stick with what I believe the Bible said about marriage, that I was going to do marriages between one man and one woman. That's what I was going to do. See, the time to decide that was before anybody came knocking on the door demanding that I uh, perform a homosexual marriage. The time to do that was when things were okay, so that when, when and if that ever happened, and, and it never has, uh, at least yet, um, it, that, that's not the time to make a decision. See, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't, just, didn't wait until they were looking at the image and listening to the fiery furnace and feeling the heat of it before they made the decision. They made it in advance, and that is what Christians must do. That's what you must do, because when you're facing the crowd, when you're facing the, 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 the financial ruin, that's not the time to make the decision. You should have made the decision months and years before. Um, some of us need to take a stand on what we believe to be right sooner rather than we think. And I'm not talking about believers in foreign countries. I'm talking about right here. Um, American history follows roughly a 75-year cycle. I'm a student of history. I love history. Um, every 75 years or so, give or take a few years, America is, has an identity crisis and is called to redefine itself. Follow me through history. In 1776, we had to decide if we were going to be English colonies or a sovereign nation of our own. We fought the Revolutionary War, and that ended in 1783. All right? 78 years later, roughly 75, 78 years later, in 1861, we had to decide if we were going to be a loose collection of sovereign states or if we were going to be a federal nation. And so, you know what happened in 1861? We fought the Civil War. Prior to the Civil War, uh, all the documents, all the historical documents say these United States, plural, these United States. After the Civil War, um, it started being the United States. Go back in history and look at it. The Civil War ended in 1865. 76 years later, in 1941... America once again had to decide what it was going to be. Would we continue the isolationist policy set up by George Washington through our history, or would we move onto the scene and be a world superpower? And we fought World War II. Um, and that ended in 1945. Now, 75 years later, it is 2020. History says that there's another turning point where America will have to decide who she is. And I think the decision is going to be this. Are we going to be a constitutional capitalist republic, traditional uh, like we have been, or are we going to be a secular socialist European style state? The, the reason I think that is because those are what the two major political parties are pushing. 
One is, is a traditional constitutional capitalist republic, and another one is pushing for a socialist European state. Uh, and I believe in the middle of all that is the Christian faith. I believe that the Christian faith and the cultural implications of that are the battleground. People have said it is a culture war, and this is not front page news to anyone. Everyone who has ever read a newspaper or seen a, a media thing or is on social media knows that this is what the big defining moment is. This is what the battle is. It is a culture war with Christianity and faith in the middle of it, okay? And, and I don't know if the coronavirus has something to do with it. I don't know if that's a, a, a catalyst for uh, the, the confrontation, but, um, but there, there is something that's going to happen this year. That's what history said. Now, before you go any further, I don't have a direct word from God saying the world's going to fall apart next week. I don't, don't, don't hear that. What I'm doing is I'm simply doing what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did, is I'm reading the culture, and I'm also reading our history. History says something big is going to happen this year, and I believe it's going to revolve around faith. Um, I don't know if this, like I said, I don't know if coronavirus has anything to do with it, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did something. They knew something that a lot of us don't, and it's this. They knew what was worth dying for. That's what they knew. They knew walking into that situation what it was in life that was worth dying for. My question is, do you know that? Do you know what is worth dying for? Do you know what is truly worth dying for? Because only know, you only know what is worth living for when you know what is worth dying for. See, when we, when we find that thing inside of us, that thing we value, that thing we hold on to after we've sacrificed everything else that is worth dying for, only then and only then do we know what focus our life should take, where we should go start living. So can we trust God in standing for what we believe is right? A faith that costs us nothing is worth nothing. Find what is worth dying for. Then and only then will you know what is worth living for. I've found in my life, after a lot of soul searching, a lot of heart searching, what I believe to be worth dying for. There's a lot. I'm gonna share some of those with you. It wasn't easy. These are things that are unpopular sometimes in some circles. These are things that will get me in trouble. These are things that will upset people. These are things that I believe are worth dying for, and therefore, they're also worth living for. Number one, I believe in Jesus Christ, only Son of God, who was crucified, dead, buried, and resurrected, and that salvation is found only in him. I believe that. I believe in the Christian faith. I believe in the natural rights that God has given every man, woman, and child stated in Scripture, written in the Declaration of Independence, and protected by the Constitution. I believe marriage is a holy union symbolizing Christ and his church. It is God's territory, and it exists between one man and one woman. I believe in the power of God's grace to heal every wound, to forgive every sin, and to change every heart. I believe the church is God's plan to reach his, his world with the gospel, and there is no plan B. I believe that I am to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that I am to love my neighbor as myself. I believe that bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to every corner of creation and that all, so that all may know Jesus Christ and his grace, power, and healing mercy is the duty of every Christian. I believe that. That's, those are some of the things that I've found that are worth dying for. 
and those are therefore the things that I found worth living for. Now, those are, that's for me. Those are the things I have, I have found that are of ultimate value, the things that I hold on to after I sacrificed everything else. There are a lot more. There are other things that I believe that are worth dying for. Those are the things that, that I've listed here. Do you know what is worth dying for? Because only those things are worth living for. We've wasted so much of our time, so much of our energy, so much of our lives in things that just don't mean anything. And we've wasted so many opportunities and wasted so much time uh, shrinking back and not standing for the things that we know to be right. And I'm calling everyone to look inside, to make pre-decisions, to decide what it is in advance, what's worth dying for, and therefore what is worth living for, what is worth standing for, and what is worth not standing for. Those are the decisions you have to make for yourself, guided by scripture, guided by the Holy Spirit, guided by the Christian faith. And if you do not know what's worth dying for and you are lost, I want to suggest to you that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is reaching out to you right now, that he loves you, he wants to enter your life, he wants you to surrender to him, he wants to cleanse your past, he wants to fix your present, and he wants to secure your future. And that is what he wants to do today. And if you have never made that decision, if you've never made that commitment, I'm asking you to do that right now. I'm asking you, let, send us a, an email, send us a text, contact us. We would love to talk with you about becoming a Christian. Right now is the time to do it. Right now, right now, don't wait. Right now is the time to seek out. Find a Christian that you know, find somebody, if you don't wanna text or email us, uh, find somebody that you know and, and say, hey, I need to know about Jesus. I need to know about this thing that's worth dying for. Do that today, don't wait. And I'm gonna ask you guys, do you have enough trust in God to stand for what you know to be right? Because a faith that costs us nothing is worth nothing. God bless you. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.